week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour with my fantastic co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, our medical guide. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host for this show. Hello, Glenn. How are you? Excellent, Christina. I am really looking forward to speaking with Dr. Michael Carney today. We've been trying to get him on for about six years now. <laughs> well, it's and, time. Uh, today's... <laughs> Today's the day, so we need to take full advantage of that. And as much as I would love to just sit around and chat with you, let's get to talking to Michael. Welcome, Michael Carney. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for honoring us. It's been a while that uh, we've been plugging away here, huh? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I've been so difficult to track down. Oh, <laughs> happy but, you to know. be here. <laughs> Welcome. So, Michael, before we get into the the main process of today, I'm very interested. You were you were trained in Europe under a European system, and you've practiced in Europe, and you also have done training here and practiced here in the United States. I'm wondering if you see any uh, differences in ways that we in the United States would benefit or other things that you might bring up that are different? Yeah, that's right, Glenn. I've been, uh, I did all my training in, in Ireland. That's where I went to medical school. Uh, then I did some of my postgrad work in, in the UK. Um, but I've been here for about 20 years now. And en route, I did some work in, in Canada as well. So I've had a chance to see how things work with healthcare, you know, in, in those different places. Um, well, I, I guess one of the one of the differences I see, I mean, I, I've been working for nearly 40 years now in, in, in my specialty area of of palliative care. And in in Europe, where palliative care and hospice really began, um, palliative care now covers all aspects of uh, serious illness through to end of life care. So that's one big difference that I notice between either side of the Atlantic is that uh, in, in the UK and in Ireland, palliative care includes the care of people who are living with say cancer um, or some other serious illness who need a lot of help with symptom management and psychosocial support and spiritual support. Um, and then if they transition into hospice, if things don't work out with their treatment, they're followed all the way through from beginning to end. Whereas here, there's a distinction in North America between palliative care and hospice because of the way Medicare works. So that's one big difference that I see. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that was very interesting. Uh, and I'm sorry to hear that it's always about uh, insurance that dictates so much of uh, things. Is there anything in training that's different between uh, the United Kingdom and the United States? 
Yeah, um, I think there is because I meet some uh, doctors here in um, in the hospital in Santa Barbara where I work, who've actually done their uh, postgraduate training, their special, or their who've actually been to medical school in Ireland um, and then come back here for their postgraduate training. But mm -hmm. um, what they've said to me and what I've noticed myself is that the training that one gets as a medical student in Ireland, um, and I think this applies probably to the UK as well, is uh, perhaps a little bit more uh, sort of bedside based. There's a little bit more emphasis placed on clinical exam and the importance of taking the history and perhaps the actual direct interaction and contact with patients at the bedside. Um, that's something that's been sort of, I've noticed a little bit since I've been working here. And uh, as I say, colleagues who've actually done their medical training in Ireland have said the same, that they're, they're happy to have had that experience of training in Ireland, which was so bedside based, where a lot of emphasis is based, if you like, on the importance of one's connection with the patient and bedside manner and just the quality of communication. Um, not that that's not good here, but that it's not necessarily the primary emphasis is what I'm hearing. And that that actually is very sad for me. I'm seeing that also now in, in my practice that uh, a lot of the doctors that are taking a history are sitting at a computer, facing the computer. They're not putting their hands on the person. I, I always believed that was an important part, but I... I digress to technology and innovation. So we'll just see how that works out over uh, another lifetime. <laughs> okay. So, you know, Michael, you in your life uh, have spent a lot of time working on your own life and being the best person you can be from many different points of view. And you've chosen palliative care. So you work with, uh, the dying and people that uh, are at end of life. So I can't think of anyone more qualified right now to talk to about this. And what I would like to do, we're going to, uh, we want to interview you a few times. And in our first interview, I'd like to talk about how you looked at things about dealing with your life, other people's lives and death from the past. And I want to see how you've evolved into the present and then also into the future. And some of this, I think, can be based on uh, some of the books you've written. You've been a prolific author and uh, have approached these uh, topics uh, with a lot of care. Is that okay with you? Absolutely, yeah, sure, absolutely. All right, so let's, let's start with the past. You you've written a number of books in the past and this has to do with, I think one is called Mortally Wounded, Place for Healing. Uh, then you've written on whole person, holistic care and mindfulness. What, what did you learn in the past about how to deal with your own life, have a good life, uh, deal with patients in their lives to keep them well and happy, and then how to treat end of life? Big topic, but I'll let you take it for a few moments. <laughs> Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Glenn. That that is um, a big topic. Maybe um, 
Just very briefly, kind of a way to, to respond would be just very briefly to describe how I came into the work. Um, uh, it was a little over 40 years ago. I, 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 I was still at medical school in the mid 70s and um, I was a disillusioned medical student. I thought medicine, I found it a little bit impersonal and uncaring. Um, when I got through my kind of preliminary science years and went to the floor and started seeing how people were treated, especially people who had advanced and terminal illness, who often were put in a side room and quite frankly, not cared for always very well. And um, I was on the point of leaving medicine and uh, I, I spoke to a mentor I had at the time and he said to me, well, before you leave medicine, I can I, can I encourage you to visit this hospice in London? And he used the word, used the word hospice, which I'd never heard before. Um, I remember this was back in the, the mid 70s, the early 70s. And he said, it's a place of healing. And so I visited St. Christopher's Hospice in London, which is where the modern hospice movement began. St. Christopher's had opened just a few years previously in 1967. And uh, Dr. Cicely Saunders, Dame Cicely Saunders, who's the founder of the modern hospice movement, was still there as medical director. I spent a week there and, and really just what I saw and experienced with people who were very close to the end of their lives. Um, just uh, I kind of felt I, I suddenly understood why I wanted to do medicine. And, and the phrase my mentor had used, it's a place of healing. Uh, suddenly came back to me and I realized, yes, these people were dying, their bodies were failing, they were very close to death, and yet they were some of the most whole and real uh, individuals I had ever met. And, and in many ways, the most alive, even if they were within days of their death. And I just found that deeply inspiring. And so I went back and finished my studies and, and um, decided this is what I wanted to do, but there wasn't even a, a specialty of palliative care or hospice medicine in those days. So I had to finish my, uh, I did a, a fellowship in internal medicine, and then I went back and worked at St. Christopher's. Um, but so I've kind of been in it from back then, and that was my inspiration. And, and in those early days, what I saw uh, was that when, when individuals were in a, in, in a situation where they were valued as people, where they were listened to, where they were heard, uh, where they felt understood, and where they received the sort of care that took away their pain, that took away their shortness of breath, their sense of nausea, um, that really had somebody who sat with them and listened as they expressed their anxieties and perhaps their fears about the unknown and, and perhaps about the dying process, that that somehow created a space where, where that healing could happen. So I just was really profoundly kind of impressed with the value uh, of, of just focusing our care in that way and, 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 and the sort of transformation that can happen, happen in individuals um, when that happens. And so my interest all the way through from the very beginning has not just been in the medical aspect of hospice care and palliative care. And, and if I could just very briefly to just clarify 
there is there is some difference between the two, certainly in North America, when we talk about palliative care, we're talking about the care of individuals with serious and advanced illness, um, offering them symptom management, psychosocial support, focusing on their quality of life. But a lot of the individuals we see, I've just come from a morning in the hospital and I'm see, I've seen people, we, you know, who new diagnosis of leukemia. Um, I've seen people who are in uh, are really serious pain, but but you know it's because they've got you know a chronic condition which is causing a lot of pain, but they're not necessarily terminally ill. So the point I'm trying to make is that palliative care applies the same kind of principles of hospice, but at an earlier stage of the disease trajectory, particularly in the hospital setting, but now more and more in the community also. Whereas hospice care is really that sort of care, focusing on symptom management, quality of life, psychosocial support for people who are within the last six months or so of their life. Um, and so working in that field or in this field for the last 40 years, my particular interest has been on the sort of healing transformation that can happen within individuals as they approach death. Even, you know, uh, one of my mentors, but also a good friend of mine, Balfour Mount uh, in Montreal, who coined the phrase palliative care and started the first palliative care program on, in North America at, uh, at McGill, at the Royal Victoria Hospital, rather, in Montreal, he has he a phrase where he says, it's possible to die healed. It's mm. possible to die healed. And, and so that's, that's been a lot of my interest in the field. And uh, thank you for referring to my books. I haven't written many books, but I've written three books to date. And the, the two books you refer to are uh, from earlier in my career were focused more on how to facilitate healing in in persons who are approaching death and um and, and and i guess if i was to just summarize real quickly what the essence of that is um i would say it's a combination of what i i described earlier sort of clearing clearing a space where healing can happen uh by managing symptoms, taking away the pain and the other symptoms, which can really dominate somebody's um, waking hours if they're, if they're there. Um, offering the sort of support to that individual and their families where they felt listened to and heard. And really understanding that what we're dealing with is a very profound psychological and spiritual process. Um, and, and one of the fields that's been just very helpful to me in my thinking, my approach, uh, especially in, in the earlier days of my career, was uh, depth psychology and Jungian psychology. And, um, and I, I kind of came to recognize that part of what we're doing from a psychological point of view is really caring for the dying ego. And if we understand that, that we're not just caring for the dying body, we're caring for the dying ego. And so how do we care for this part of ourselves that can be so terrified in the face of the unknown, that can be so terrified when it senses a loss of control? Um, 
uh, and so recognizing that fear is is a really really big issue um, and if if somebody uh, feels uh, cared for and feels held and comes to a sense of inner security where that terrified ego can relax its grip and kind of let go a little bit um, and come into that place of deep security uh, somebody can really come into a very a, a very peaceful place in themselves uh, and and that peace kind of uh, uh, is there instead of that fear and that makes the dying process so much easier for that individual and for their families i don't think i've heard uh, the dying ego spoken of much mm -hmm. and that's a a great way to put it and i think it it's important to clarify that a lot of people use almost synonymously the words healing and curing and you're not talking about that are you no you know thanks for picking up on got that glenn and that's right um uh you know, the healthcare tends to focus a lot on prevention and and curing and of course that's what we want to do if possible but in situations where we can't cure as in fixing as in making better as in restoring the status quo that was there previously by intervening and treating uh, in situation where that's not possible and obviously that's not possible uh, for individuals living with chronic illness and for individuals living with an illness that's become a terminal illness uh, it's still possible to think of of healing as in wholeness as in mm -hmm. a sort of inner inner um, integration and wholeness. It's, it's possible to talk about healing even in that setting. So in your early days of uh, out of your training and everything else, what were the things that you did to keep yourself going? You said at one point you didn't even think you wanted to practice medicine, but now you're in it because you were inspired, but you're dealing with uh, sick people all the time and you chose a specialty of people that were dying how did you and what practices did you bring into your life that helped you to function well for other people well um i mean i think one thing that made a difference for me was just kind of finding a field finding an area that i really loved and felt passionate about um, and inspired by and just um, having the opportunity to work in that field that 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 in itself was was just deeply rewarding but um, I remember when I started working in St. Christopher's I had this sense of you know this this is wonderful I just love uh, working in this field I just love being with these people um, and it just felt very very um, kind of nourishing and rewarding but after I was there for about three months, um, everything sort of came to a, a, a bit of a grinding halt in that I, I experienced what I now understand to be uh, acute compassion fatigue or vicarious traumatization. And um, I, didn't, I didn't know about this at the time. I've learned about this since then because I've a lot of interest in resilience in healthcare and how we can mitigate and prevent burnout. Um, 
because I realized late in my career or and not so long ago that I was pretty burnt out. But when I look back on those early days, I realize that um, I had gone into the field loving it, but very, very undefended and without a lot of self-awareness as to just how, if you like, how stressful and how traumatic it was to be in the presence of so much loss and to be in the presence of so much suffering day after day as one is working in hospice as I was at the time. And so while I was loving it, at the same time, um, I was experiencing what I now understand to be what's called vicarious traumatization or secondary traumatic stress disorder, where one is empathically present to somebody who's in a lot of suffering. Um, and that can be very supportive, obviously, to the one who is suffering, but it also can put one at risk of being secondarily traumatized by the suffering of the one one is with. And, um, and so I think that that is what happened to me. And so um, uh, my medical director at the time kind of, I think, saw what was happening. And he said, well, you know, uh, he advised me to take a long weekend break with my family, which I did. And then he said, I, I really encourage you to start seeing somebody um, for some counseling, for some therapy. He said, I've been doing it for years and it's it's what's kept me sane. And so that was the beginning for me of the first time ever that I kind of got involved in, in psychotherapy, uh, you know, um, and uh, started working with a, a counselor and, and later a therapist. And later I went into a Jungian analysis, which I was in for many years. And so that's one thread of what has been very supportive for me and helped me to kind of not just maintain my sanity, but um, but actually allow me to continue working with a sort of an open heart um, in the work. Um, and so I think that kept me going for quite a long time and was was invaluable. Christina, any thoughts? Oh, so many. <laughs> I have to say, Michael, you, you work in an area that, that I feel very close to. Um, I am an energetic body worker, and it's uh, always been a pleasure to assist people during these times. And mm -hmm. I agree with you to the point of there. It, it's such an honor because individuals, if they so choose, and many do, um, I always say it's almost like all the layers of the onion skin get shed in those moments and the beauty of mm -hmm. who the individuals mm -hmm. are come to surface and to be, mm -hmm. I mean, to be honored by this magnificent being, you know, in, mm -hmm. in these moments, mm -hmm. in these moments uh, is yeah. fascinating and, and how mm -hmm. amazing that you knew that from such an early part of your career and embraced it till now and continuing to develop like your books and you know your your paths to guide others through this is i think it's magnificent thank you well thank you christian that's beautifully beautifully expressed and i i, I very much resonate with just the way you describe it thank you mm. tell me more about compassion fatigue 
Okay. Um, so there, um, there, I learned about compassion fatigue, Glenn, when, um, in about 2008, I think it was, um, I was invited with a group of others to write an article on, um, uh, self-care for clinicians or self-care for physicians working at the end of life. And it was for a series in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, on care at the end of life. And this was going to be the last article in the series. And so I started uh, looking into this whole area and I, I learned that there are three well-described occupational stress syndromes. Um, one of them, which we all know of, obviously, is burnout. Um, and actually, burnout is this sort of endpoint of all the occupational stress syndromes. And we, the kind of key symptoms of burnout are uh, physical and emotional exhaustion, which is really chronic and which is the sort of exhaustion we don't easily recover from, even if we have a a good weekend break or even take a long vacation, you know, it's still there. It's, like, it's kind of a bone, a bone deep uh, exhaustion. The second is a sort of depersonalization, a sense of distancing from one's work. And the third is what's called a lack of personal accomplishment, where you never feel you're quite providing the quality of work that you'd like to provide. So a sense of kind of constant uh, dissatisfaction. Um, and burnout is generated from stress between the individual and their work environment. So we looked at an oncologist in our article and he said, what burns me out is not all the losses I have to endure in my work. It's fighting with insurance companies. So it's that kind of institutional occupational stress that generates burnout. The second occupational stress syndrome is compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is also known as vicarious traumatization or secondary traumatic stress disorder, which are more descriptive. Because um, some would say, particularly those who come from a more Buddhist background, that compassion is not fatigable. But, um, but certainly it is possible to be secondarily stressed and distressed by being in the presence of another suffering. And when that becomes overwhelming or chronic that can give rise to uh, the symptoms of vicarious traumatization or secondary traumatic stress so-called compassion fatigue which are the symptoms of ptsd so flashbacks nightmares you know alarm and so on um, but over time that can lead to burnout as well and then the third occupational stress syndrome is what's called moral distress syndrome or moral distress disorder and it's it's actually, I think, a really interesting one. It, it was described first in the nurse literature, but it's here the stress arises when an individual has to act in an environment that sort of compels them to act in a particular way that goes against their inner sense of what's, what's right. So for mm. example, you know, a nurse who has to continue doing painful interventions on a patient who is clearly um, very, very close to the end of their life, but being kept alive on, you know, ventilators and drips and, 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 and the nurse still has to do interventions that are painful. And the nurse may feel, you know, really 
this person is so close to the end of their life. Um, it is so hard for me to do this. Um, I, I, I wish the family would just allow nature to take its course and for us to focus on this individual's comfort, but instead they have to go on doing something that is causing that individual what appears to be discomfort, but the deeper distress is that it's going against their inner sense of what the right thing to do is. That's so-called moral distress syndrome. So those are the three different uh, occupational stress disorders. That was that was really good. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking you spend a lot of time, you've spent a lot of time, I believe, uh, studying Buddhism. And I was interested in hearing about the idea that compassion can't be fatigued. I was also curious, it made me think about, uh, in Buddhism, they talk about getting rid of the ego. Uh, do you see people that practice Buddhism at the end of life have any difference in that process, the dying ego? Yeah, that's, that's interesting, Glenn. Um... I mean, I think what I see, what I've seen and what I see in all individuals, um, not just those that practice uh, meditation um, or that that come from, a, have a Buddhist practice. But what I do see is that individuals who have a practice that somehow, that is really a hard practice, that really takes them into a sense of deep connection. Uh, with themselves, with others, with the world, with ultimate reality, um, and who who have a way of tapping into that, whether it's through meditation or some other practice. Um, individuals who have a practice like that seem to have less fear, I would say, and less fear of death. Uh, maybe it's because they have more of an experience of of that deep inner inner uh, fluidity and flow that is that is deathless that is you know um that that uh, and, and in that sense it is beyond ego um so so yeah i, I whereas i i've seen in other individuals who may have a strong um uh, and, and this isn't in any way being critical of those with kind of Kind of religious belief system, but if it is if it is more ideological and more sort of rational based um, and not so much heart based, um, it doesn't always give the same sense of deep inner uh, comfort and support. Um, it doesn't seem to evaporate fear in the same way that uh, a deep inner connection practice does. Uh, that was excellent. Uh, we're coming to the end of our show, and I'm looking forward to some future shows with you where we get into uh, the present and then into the future. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Carney, for sharing your expertise and wisdom with us and our viewers. I'm so happy to do so. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Michael, and thank you, Glenn, for this moment, the very, very powerful and deep moment, as I say, it's one of my favorite topics ever. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining us here on a Magical Medical Tour. Uh, we look forward to hearing your comments, your feedback. If you're watching this at all on YouTube, please give us a like. It would definitely help us to 
continue um, bringing more and more to you. Um, if you would like to uh, connect with uh, Dr. Michael Carney, please do so on his website, uh, michaelcarney.com. And he just notified us that he, his website's being revamped and uh, we look forward to his new site, but you can still get hold of him there now at this time. If you would like to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman, please do so at glennwoolman.com or join him at uh, Facebook on The Medical Guide. And again, we look forward to hearing your comments. We'd love to know what topics you'd like us to share with you. Um, give us a call or make a comment in the comment box and call us on 818-LET'S-TALK, uh, 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, thank you for joining us.